0: Welcome to Navigating the Vortex. I'm Lucy Marcus.
1: And I'm Stefan Wolf, and we are coming to you from our kitchen table.
0: Like kitchen tables the world over, it has seen its fair share of deep and very superficial conversations. The birth of Navigating the Vortex is very much driven by what we do around tables like this wherever we are. We catch up on the news of the week and chat about the things that we've been working on and the things that are taking up space in our heads.
1: It's not that we don't communicate during the week. We do. We send each other articles and op-eds, either that we have written or that we have found interesting, profound, or ridiculous. We send clever cartoons, snippets of videos, voice memos, the usual.
0: I'm usually the one sending the cartoons, I must admit. We include friends and colleagues in our exchanges of information and opinion via WhatsApp and Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and now Substack Notes. When we meet up with friends for supper or over a cup of coffee... We come away with more depth of understanding and an appreciation of completely different ways of looking at things.
1: This happens whether we are in Birmingham, but in Chisinau, Rome, Geneva, Aspen, New York, or Vienna. And whether it is people we talk to in boardrooms around the world, a relaxing meal after a day of meetings, or the mumbles we get from a group of 17 year olds eating the kitchen bell,
0: That happens a lot. We decided it was time to take some of the best parts of these conversations and share them more widely, and to add more voices and perspectives, yours, to these conversations. I suppose we should introduce ourselves a bit. I've been a non-executive board director and board chair, a CEO, a columnist, and a speaker, known for challenging conventional wisdom inside and outside the boardroom. I've written columns that tackle issues around future-proofing borders around the world and thinking differently about the business of doing business, and they've appeared in The Guardian, Harvard Business Review, Fortune, Market Watch, as well as being translated into multiple languages and published in papers around the world. I also wrote a column for the BBC, and I hosted a TV show for Reuters that focused on the intersection of boards and leadership. I've served on boards and companies and nonprofits, including on the Control, Risk, and Corporate Governance Committee of a global infrastructure company. I've worked in a number of sectors from healthcare to life sciences and from environment to technology and in funding around venture capital and the private equity funds and institutions. Steph?
1: Well, I'm a professor of international security at the University of Birmingham. where I focus mostly on geopolitics and international conflict management. I'm the author and editor of 20 books. I've published over 80 journal articles and book chapters. My particular interest is in great power competition in the post-Soviet space, including the rivalries between Russia, China and the West. Apart from that, I'm the founding editor of the journal Ethnopolitics and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Center in London.
0: In coming episodes, we'll be featuring a combination of discussions between us as well as chats with guest experts – We've got some great ones lined up, so make sure you follow us and subscribe to make sure that you don't miss anything.
1: We'll be doing an analysis of current events and how they connect to the big ideas that are shaping our world, followed by a focus on specific topics such as the impact of technology on business, the role of social media and politics, or like this week, the changing dynamics of global trade. Most importantly, we'll be incorporating your questions and feedback.
0: Normally, our On Our Radar columns would look at very different issues. Somehow, though, in the past week or so, all roads lead to geopolitical risk and their impact on pretty much everything.
1: Well, the three most recent On Our Radar columns, covering reports from the World Bank, the IMF, as well as EU-China relations, have several points in common. They all look at the prospects of sustainable economic growth and how this is negatively affected by geopolitical risks. They highlight the negative impact of geopolitical fragmentation on global trade flows, foreign direct investment and technological advancement, as well as its effects on advanced and developing economies. And they also note that geopolitical fragmentation makes it more difficult for the international community to tackle global challenges like climate change and prepare for future pandemics.
0: Finally, the articles each look at the impact of these issues on the private sector and how organizations of any size and scope across any sector can rise to these challenges. So we're going to drill down on a couple of the points. Steph, you focus a lot on geopolitical risks. Why are they such important factors?
1: Well, that's mostly because they are just so intertwined with economic development. Take the example of rising US China tensions. If the two largest economies of the world decouple, this will have a major impact on global trade flows, on supply chains, on investments. These impacts will also be all negative, especially in the short term. Or take EU China relations. Again, you have two major economies that are among each other's largest import and export markets. And if they don't manage to keep their political disagreements manageable, their economies will suffer. And that, in turn, will make them less likely to want to cooperate politically, which will then make economic decoupling a more attractive political choice.
0: But hasn't the Russian invasion of Ukraine demonstrated that we really can't do business with authoritarian regimes? So why should Europe do business with China?
1: Well, that's a really good point, but as the reports that we have covered from the IMF and earlier from the World Bank have shown, it's really not just about these big economies. If we get more geopolitical fragmentation, developing economies will be affected too. They will have to choose who they align with, which will determine what kind of development aid they will receive and under what conditions. And while any of these readjustments will take time, other problems will persist. Climate change is a truly global challenge and cannot be tackled either by a China-led bloc or a US-led bloc. And future pandemics, too, will require broad multilateral actions, as does a looming debt crisis with a number of developing economies already on the brink of sovereign default. But there is another aspect to that. So I wonder how does this threat of further fragmentation of global economic and financial systems actually impact the private sector?
0: What happens in one place has an impact on everywhere else. If there's a concern about the monetary system, that reverberates around the world and at lightning speed. Look at the jitters that came from Silicon Valley Bank. Conflicts, public policies, local and global conflagrations have a direct impact on companies of all kinds, not just multinationals. Though that is where you and I find ourselves together talking to boards about global risks and their impact on companies in global industries like oil and gas and pharmaceuticals.
1: So isn't there then also something that organizations in the private sector should do to deal with these risks? Be better prepared to weather any headwinds that are coming.
0: Yeah, Oftentimes organizations that aren't operating overseas directly think that these issues have nothing to do with them. But that just isn't true. No matter how big or how small, no matter the sector or scope of work, what is happening around the world has a huge impact on all organizations. The war in Ukraine is a perfect example. Food prices, energy prices, wages. There is no organization, public or private, for profit or not for profit, that hasn't felt the bite in some way may be that company boards don't have the war in Ukraine on their risk register, or at least they didn't up until now. Just like I'm pretty sure that in 2019, most organizations didn't have world-altering pandemic on their risk register, but they will hopefully have had the knock-on effects of that, like energy prices and so on, on that list. Now they know that as much as some politicians might like to think they can isolate their countries, that simply is impossible. I mean, you can't Brexit your way out of global interdependence. You can take an extremely conservative view as a politician to be isolationist, but the way the world works today, you lead or follow. You can't close your eyes to the reality of it, and the same is true for business.
1: So do you see any scope here then for private sector organizations to work together with political leaders, and what should this look like?
0: Absolutely. I've written in the past about the necessity of public-private partnerships. Multinationals have more pulling and pushing power than ever before. But with great power comes great responsibility. And it is one of the reasons that I've talked so much about corporate responsibility and the responsibility of companies to be held to account for their business activities around the world. I'm actually deeply proud that someone recently referred to me as the Doyen of woke capitalism. But that's a discussion for another day, one that we will have, but probably takes
1: us far afield right now.
0: What do you have on your radar for the coming weeks?
1: Well, there are a couple of things that I have my eyes on. China has been really active in Central Asia for a while there, and it has just put out a position paper on Afghanistan. So I will be following up on this. There's also been Joe Biden's trip to Northern Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement there. And that's another really interesting case of the intersection of business and politics, including in the context of Brexit. What about you?
0: Well, there's a bunch of stuff. I'm keeping an eye on this woke capitalism nonsense and the way that it's playing into US politics and starting to seep into the politics of the whole world. Also, exciting for me, we are entering annual general meeting season. So I'll be writing about the hot topics on this year's meetings and what's going to be coming down the pike and how things are going for the issues that were raised in the shareholder spring. There's a lot more, but people will have to keep their eyes peeled for what's coming in the newsletter from Navigating the Vortex. That's it for this week's podcast. If you aren't already signed up to receive Navigating the Vortex delivered straight to your inbox, you can find us by clicking on the link of the podcast player you're listening to or Googling us, Navigating the Vortex.
1: We are hosted on all of your favorite podcasting outlets, including Apple and Spotify. The podcast and newsletter are hosted on Substack, so you can find us there. You'll get all our columns, interviews, as well as the notes for new episodes of this Navigating the Vortex podcast, and you can try out Substack Notes with us.
0: Yeah, we can learn as we go along together. If you're already a subscriber, thanks so much. Please share Navigating the Vortex with anyone you think might find it of interest. Your ratings and sharing help to make us better, and we want to hear back from you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Talk to you
1: soon. Goodbye.
0: Bye.